Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. His father got disciplined for standing up to a slave owner. Listen. His father received a hundred lashes and got his right ear cut off. One day, at the age of nine, Josiah was caught reading a grammar book by a slave master, Mr. Riley. Mr. Riley beat him so bad eyes were swollen and he became unconscious. As he grew older, he became the overseer of the plantation. Josiah was able to work and stack up some money so he can purchase his freedom. But Mr. Riley cheated him out of his money. So after that, he escaped to Canada. And that's where he gave his story. In 1852, author Harriet Beecher Stowe released a powerful fictional book called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Fictional, but it was also based on Josiah's life. This book was so powerful that if you were caught reading it, selling it, or buying it, you would be arrested. Not only could you be arrested, but you could also be sentenced to death. Inside of the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you will learn about two characters. One, Uncle Tom, and the other, Sambo. Uncle Tom was a good dude. He never snitched. He never beat anybody. And he was the guy, if your sack was empty or your sack was low, he would take cotton out of his sack and put it into yours, just so you wouldn't get beat. Because he was so looked up to, he was so loved, and he was the man holding everything down. They had to put another slave in charge of him, and that slave was Sambo. Sambo's orders was to beat Uncle Tom every night, all the way up until his death. Uncle Tom was beat to death in the fictional book for not giving up the whereabouts of two women slaves that escaped. So let's change that narrative Today, of Uncle Tom. Sambo would be... Uncle Tom was a good dude. Or Sambo is what we should be calling. Who's that black lady Not Uncle I Tom. Saturday? You should be proud to be called an Uncle Tom. That name came from the white yeah, slave the boy's owners. Name, the only black lady Viewed him Uncle as Tom. a traitor. Her and that white lady. Those would be Sambo. 
I don't remember your name. The one that got into it with LeBron James, the king of basketball. Thanks for watching. Make sure you hit the thumbs up. Make sure you subscribe. I'm asking you to make a donation right now before yeah, yeah, the yeah, official yeah. FEC deadline. And if you do, it will be triple matched. Experts from Nate Silver's. chocolate all over the screen well I will get back to that story but I try to tell you guys you're calling these people Uncle Tom's but you really should be calling them Black Sambos Uncle Tom was a good cat he was a very good man you got to learn your history because white people would tell you any damn thing they got niggas and black people honkies running around here for years calling people Uncle Toms when they should have been calling them Black Sambos and vice versa. Learn your own history. Don't let some motherfucking body else tell you what your history is. No matter what race you are. Black, white, green, yellow, brown. Let's talk about women slavery in, this in America. Himself interviewed just before he died in 1979. Falk was going on about how he believed in giving blacks the right to go to school, giving them the right to vote, giving them the right to go into anything they qualified for. And then he said he experienced an epiphany. I sat down on a wagon tongue with this old black man was telling him what a different kind of white man I was. I remember him looking at me very sadly and kind of sweetly and condescending and said, you know, you still got the disease, honey. I know you think you're cured, but you're not cured. You can't give me the right to be a human being. I'm born with that right. Now, you can keep me from having that. If you've got all the policemen and all the jobs on your side, you can deprive me of it. But you can't give it to me. And I was born with it just like you was. My God, it had a profound effect on me. I was furious with him. But the more I reflect on it, the more profoundly it affected me. And I realized this was where it really was. Tell you the truth, when I think of it today, I don't know how I'm living. I remember that just as well. Look like to me, I can't. Been saved all our lives. Mother was slave. Sister was slave. Father was slave. They know us by reading right there. All that I know is they teach you to mind your master and your missus. Mama didn't know where to go. You see, after she was going, just turned, just like he turned to mount, you know. Didn't know where to go. They are haunting voices from the past. Not actors reading a script or scholars reading a text, but the actual voices of men and women, Americans, who were born in slavery. 
My name is Fountain Hughes. I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia. My grandfather belonged to Thomas Jefferson. My grandfather was 115 years old when he died. And now I am 101 years old. What if you didn't have no beds when you're slaves? You won't slip on the floor. Side of here and side of there. Just like a, a lot of uh, wild people. We didn't. We didn't know nothing. Didn't like looking no book. Harriet Smith, remembering what she saw as a small girl during the final days of the Civil War. We said all that stood on that picket fence. All day long, seeing them soldiers going back to silence on different places. Colored soldiers. Colored soldiers in Joe. right along by our, our home, two-story house. The white These recorded memories we were among thousands of interviews done with ex-slaves in the 1930s and 40s. Can you remember slavery days very well? Of course, I remember all our white folks, all the names of them, all the children. Call everyone the children's name. The results of these digitally enhanced recordings are arresting, almost unbelievable. The idea of hearing the voices of actual slaves from the plantations of the Old South is as powerful, as startling really, as if you could hear Abraham Lincoln or Robert E. Lee speak. Listen again to Fountain Hughes, who was born in 1848. We were slaves. We belonged to people. They sell us like they sell horses and cows and hogs and all like that. Have an auction bench and put you up on the bench and bid on you the same as you're bidding on cattle, you know. Much of what these three former slaves say may at first seem unremarkable. Much of what they say may surprise and upset and their calm demeanor is at odds with the evil and violence we associate with slavery. Here is 91-year-old Texan Laura Smalley talking in the 1940s about the outcome of a tussle between two women, one black, one white, one slave, one mistress. The mistress tried to slap the slave, but the black woman pushed her into a chair. Laura Smalley was a girl at the time, but she remembers vividly what happened to the black woman when the master came home. Well, they taken that old woman, poor old woman, cat in the peach orchard and whipped her. And, you know, just tied her hand this way, you know, around the peach orchard tree. I remember that just as well. Looked like to me, I can't. And around the tree and whipped her. And, well, she couldn't do nothing but just kick her feet, you know, just kick her feet. But it, it just had her clothes all down to her waist, you know. The plantation on which Smalley was a slave sounds brutal. She recalls scrambling with other children for food from a huge wooden tray, like a hog trough. All of them, you know, would get around that tree with spoons and eat. You could sit you like mush or soup or something like that. And all them children get around there and just eat, 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 eat. Fountain Hughes tells his interviewer about the relentless round of work for him 
on a Virginia plantation. It was cotton, not tobacco, that solidified slavery, though. The invention of the cotton gin at the end of the 18th century made its processing easy, but the crop still needed enormous amounts of unskilled labor. Control of the slave and his labor through laws and regulations became paramount. Fountain Hughes talks about one of those controls, the pass system. Now I couldn't go from here across the street or I couldn't go to nobody's house that I have a note or something from my master. And if I had that pass, I would really call a pass. If I had that pass, I could go wherever he sent me. And I'd have to be back. And whoever he sent me to, they'd give me another pass. And I'd bring that back, so it's a show how long. Even emancipation didn't truly free the slaves. Freedom freed slaves for more travail. The end of the Civil War found many cast adrift without skills and no place to go. And the Yankees who freed them weren't always seen as benevolent liberators. I remember when the Yankees came along and took all the good horses and took all the, sort of all the meat and flour and sugar and stuff out in the river and let it go down the river. The ex-slaves left one hell for another, perhaps an even more dangerous one. No longer property, they didn't have the protections afforded property. When we were slaves, we couldn't do that, see? Well, if we got free, we didn't know nothing to do. And my mother, she then she hunted places and bound us out for a dollar a month. But we didn't have no property. In Texas, the slaves weren't told they were free until two months after the war ended. Smalley remembers that her masters gave the slaves a dinner, and then they were free. I don't hide the other side of the folks you know freedom. We didn't know. They just thought, you know, just feeding us, you know. None of them didn't know where to go. You see, after freedom broke, just turned, just like he turned something out, you know. Didn't know where to go. But just where to stay. Mm -hmm. Didn't where to go. Turn us out just like, you know, you turn out cattle. <laughs> In the narratives, the slaves used an interesting phrase for the end of slavery. They say, when the break came. Good times, easy times were not at hand. The trials for millions of black Americans didn't end in 1865. They continued. Laura Smalley and her family became sharecroppers. Harriet Smith's first husband was killed by whites during the Reconstruction, probably because of his political organizing. Fountain Hughes went north to Baltimore and worked at numerous jobs, including hauling manure. Not an enviable job, but it was the job of a free man. Uh, 
I used to be a runner in high school and college, and uh, in my late 30s, I, uh, I began to jog. Uh, early wave of joggers, one of the most foolish things I ever did. And uh, I was jogging near my house in Washington. I was an assistant attorney general of the United States, uh, the best friend of the attorney general of the United States. I was jogging near my house. Um, and a police camp came by. Fortunately, I had my Justice Department credentials in my hip pocket. Boy, I kept on jogging. My hair was beginning to grave, and I'm jogging along. Boy, I keep on jogging. Hey, you boy! Spotlight on me. Boy, you better stop! I figured I better stop. And so I stop, and two white cops get out, slam me up against a wall, spread my legs, and then spray my legs, hit me pretty hard between the legs, and it hurt very much. Um, and, uh... I kept saying, look in my back pocket, reach in my back pocket. Boy, we're gonna, you, you robbed a store. Boy this, boy that, boy, boy, boy. They pulled out this thing, and it was a nice leather thing that said I was a Justice Department official. Oh, they melted. Oh, you look just like we had a call, and you just like, a, it, it fits you too. Oh, sir, blah, 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 blah. Well, of course, I called the police chief the minute I got home, and uh, those guys were suspended and disciplined. If I had had no credentials in my pocket, I would have been in jail that night. Middle class, 37-year-old father of two children, doing nothing more than jogging. And that's not the only time it happened to me. Well, if it would happen to me, imagine what, it would, ha what would happen to a 17-year-old black kid in the inner city. The man speaking is Roger Wilkins. I'm David Hoffman, and I filmed this interview with Roger back in 1989, and this 72-year-old man is telling me of his experiences growing up in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s. He had a really tough time, although he came from a middle-class family, became a lawyer, actually won a Pulitzer Prize, working for the Washington Post as a journalist, with Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, the famous Watergate investigation. So I'm interviewing Roger in 1989, and we really hit it off. He was ready to talk, and I was ready to ask. And I said to him, be yourself. Just let me know what you felt, what you saw, and think about it in terms of future generations. He had a daughter, Elizabeth, and he said, I'm going to talk like I'm talking to her grandchildren. So here we are in the present with all that's going on in the country right now, the racial animosity, stuff in the streets, the government, the desire to make things better. And I'm thinking of Roger. He died at 74 of dementia, and he was speaking to me at that time for the future. We're in the future. I hope you enjoy or find provocative what Roger had to say. In the early 50s, America was a horribly segregated country. It was a, it was as if the whole South was a rotten fruit that everybody everybody could smell. Um, there were a couple of notorious lynchings in Mississippi. A black kid named Emmett Till whistled at a white woman. They killed him. A black guy named uh, Mac Charles Parker, who was accused of having raped a white woman taken out of jail, killed, thrown in the river. I think both those guys were thrown in the river. 
routinely pulled out of cars and beaten up by state troopers all throughout the South. Black poverty was just horrible. It was being shown in magazines. And then the Supreme Court decided that to, it was unconstitutional for states to run segregated school systems. And little cute, clean, starched black kids began to show up on people's television screens being walked to school by their parents and screamed at by white people. The contrast could not have been more stark. Um, it, the white people who were screaming were, uh, I will, the, the caricature is the people, working class people, you know, not terribly clean. Um, some of them obese, faces distorted with anger. Uh, screaming obscenities at six, seven-year-old children. Well, television was new, everybody was glued to it. Um, that was one. Two, the country had fought this fight for democracy. Blacks felt it, whites felt it, and blacks were restless. They just, I mean, sitting on the back of the bus, uh, being relegated to the upper floor of a, of a theater, and sometimes to only one row of a theater, uh, going to a gas station when your bladder was full and not knowing whether you'd be permitted to use the bathroom. Um, having white people be just as rude to you as they chose to be, uh, giving you absolutely no respect, um, not being able to try on clothes that you bought at stores, all of that stuff, and worse was, uh, was going on. And Northerners knew it, and they had tried kind of to avoid it, but when blacks started taking their children to school. The North could no longer avoid the stinking, rotting fruit. And the South was represented by some of the most unattractive people in the Congress. Senator Theodore G. Bilbo of Mississippi was just an awful human being. And there were a lot of Southerners in the House who just spewed bile. And uh, so the North couldn't see it anymore. And blacks began to get hope from the fact that the Supreme Court had finally said uh, and blacks interpreted this 54 decision to mean the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution include us. Just as we've always said, all God's children are equal. And so we started to move. And white people thought, that's right. And a lot of white people joined in. You sound like you're talking about sort of the continuation of the Civil War, the way you describe it. Or the, it's like segregation, segregation. And the legalized oppression of black people was a continuation by the white South of the Civil War. That's exactly what it was. It was taking out on black people um, their venom against the white Northerners um, and saying, you may think that you took our way of life away from us, but you're wrong and your foolish social theories are wrong too. So it was a continuation of the Civil War, there's no question about it. I want to ask you about some very basic concepts as they were perceived then. Integration. What did integration mean? Well, integration had another a connotation that was, I mean, it was squeezed the same way uh, communism squeezed economics out of us. Uh, you couldn't say 
that you wanted integration to be all mixed up because the white southerners kept on saying, well, all they want to do is sleep with white women. They say, no, no, we don't want to sleep with white women. Keep your darn women. They're not that cute anyway. We don't want them. What we want is good educations for our children. Um, and I think that integration for us meant freedom from oppression. I don't think that black people really thought of joining the country cover this or that. They thought, get, get rid of this humiliation. First of all, get some equal education for our children. That everybody knew. That was a goal. Get equal education, brother, because that's our future. Um, but don't tell me I can't go to the bathroom anymore. Don't tell me I can't sit anywhere on the bus or in the theater. Don't tell me that. I don't, I don't, it's just too terrible. Um, I don't, I don't think it was a positive thing. I just think it was get rid of all of this oppression. I mean, you cannot understand how horrible it was to have to contemplate a trip south. And the third thing was, was, was freedom from fear of, of, of being injured in the south. But a trip to the south for a northerner was fraught with peril because you, 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 you were worried that you would run a car run out of gas and some person would be violent to you and have no recourse to the law because the law was totally unfair. And that, and then once you got to the town where you were going to be, if you had usually, if you're wise, you had made arrangements to stay with friends because you couldn't stay at the local hotel, and there was often no public place to eat. Well, we want to be rid of all of that stuff. I think if I thought about it, I would have thought that white people's bad views of black people are based uh, on uh, ignorance. And uh, when we get together, they will cease to be ignorant about us, and they will, the scales will fall from their eyes, and they will begin to be decent. That's what I thought. I was pretty naive, but that's what I thought. I think that uh, uh, black people are always super Americans. We had to believe in America more than other people did. <laughs> in order to have any hope, in order to live, in order not to go crazy. Uh, we had to believe that uh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments meant something, and that the Declaration of Independence, though written by a slave owner, did mean uh, the full scope of the words. Um, so once we had the opportunity to make it work, We went full bore at it, and besides, we were had this terrible itch of the humiliation in our daily lives that we wanted to get rid of. Um, but we also had something else, and that was a very powerful faith in the decency of white people. I no longer have that faith, but we had it then. And that was, if we can only demonstrate to white people how rotten this system is, most of them will, uh, most of them will, will change and the country will change very rapidly. Um, 
I think that gave us our discipline, and that, that faith, both in the country and in the decency of white people. White people owned everything. They owned uh, the means of, they owned all the payrolls, and um, they owned all the, all the cops, they owned all the criminal courts. Ownership of the country is a great enforcer. Black person gets out, get out of line, he's deemed crazy and he's dealt with. Sometimes he's killed, sometimes he's sued for, he's, 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 he's prosecuted for tax evasion. Uh, sometimes he's fired. Um, black people knew. I mean, and, and earlier, of course, you got killed or whipped in slavery time. So black people knew that it was very dangerous express anger to white people and tell white people how they felt and how stupid they thought white people were. And so <laughs> the old black comedian once said, boss asked me what the weather is like, I look in his face for look outside. I mean, and that kind of summed up the universe, the emotional universe within which black people had to operate. So it wasn't until the 50s and the 60s gave black people a little elbow room in the society that uh, we could um, begin to begin to uh, express what was really in us and express our true outrage at this horrendous wrong, continuing wrong that had been done to us over 360 years. Um, which makes Frederick Douglass all the more astonishing. He made a Fourth of July oration in 1852 when there was still slavery. And he said, what is your Fourth of July? A hypocrisy and a mockery. Black guy's saying it in 1852. Unbelievable. If I said something in 67 when I was 35 years old, it had antecedents back in that segregated schoolhouse, you know. It had antecedents when people threw stones at me when I rode to school. It had antecedents when people called me nigger had antecedents when uh, people spit great gobs of gooey, nasty spit on my bicycle seat. So that, um, and it probably had uh, also immediate uh, uh, stimuli, but the passion that went into what I might have said in 67 um, had a depth that uh, was uh, as deep as my entire being. Ralph Ellison wrote, a great American novel called The Invisible Man. One of the great indignities that black people suffered was being invisible. White people not seeing them, or as Ellison said, what you see is something on the fringe of me, or what you see is a figment of your imagination, but you refuse to see me. What those people were saying, you, okay, you're doing all this for the South. Now see me. Here I am, right in the middle of New York, right in the middle of Chicago. See me. Do something. I need a job, I need a better school, I need something. And, uh, this, is, this is awful. Um, so what I saw, despite the destruction, I was pleased because the invisible ghetto dweller was becoming visible. America finally was being forced to confront the fact that uh, the maimed and the wounded from oppression 
were in the inner cities and something had to be done about their plight. People didn't talk about police community relations and there were not very many integrated police forces and the ones that had them had blacks at the lower end of the totem pole. And uh, blacks saw the police as occupying armies and police were insensitive and thought that their job was to contain the niggers with heads. And many of the riots around the country were triggered, were triggered by a, by a incident. Um, the one in Harlem was a guy, cop shot a kid. The one in Detroit, cop shot a kid. The one in Watts, cop shot a kid. Um, black power I think that means to me when I black sit now in the a badge of honor to the 1989 white and have my Sixty year old black child on my lap and her little you short afro and I nuzzle my face in her hair and I say, Oh, I love your George hair. Floyd's it is neck. so wonderful. And your brown skin is so pretty. Posing. That's what that's a lot of what black posing. power left for me. It was it was a rejection. Now. It was a fundamental rejection of all those rotten lies that people have told us all this time about us. That my wide nose and my thick lips and my Look at the picture. Look at the fucking picture. That, uh, there is no way that uh, my 30-year-old daughter can be as beautiful as Michelle Pfeiffer. It's outrageous. But we believed it. We believed it because they had the culture. They had the power. They, they, they made the movie shows. And um, they put... Uh, they put Rita Hayworth on the cover of Life magazine instead of Lena Horne or, or, or some other black woman who was had blacker features than that. They were the ones who made us the buffoons and the studs and the mammies, you know. And the bucks. They were the ones who told us we were slow and couldn't talk right and all the rest of it. And the worst thing you can do to a human being is to make her or him believe doesn't count. Can't do anything. Have all the things that, uh, all the offenses that were done to me and other people about which I get angry, that's the one that just drives me crazy. I mean, it's not abstract to me. I mean, when I say these things, of course I understand what it means for millions of other black people, but it's also me personally, it's my children personally, it's my defense of my children. And I am profoundly offended that the society still assaults all three of my children that way. Profoundly offended. It makes me so angry I don't know what to do. When you have something that is that explosive, of course it is not going to be contained so that it doesn't hurt somebody. So it becomes not just black is beautiful, black is beautiful, you honky. It becomes a weapon. And it did. The, the country black I live in lives now. matter. Black is beautiful. It doesn't bear any resemblance to the country I was born into. And black people are so much freer. Now there's still this horrid thing in the ghetto. This and it's you know, 30%, 33% of black people are still impoverished. So I'm not saying that it is nearly over. But 
we are so much freer of the feeling that every white person might do us damage or hurt us and that we can't be free and expansive or that we have to be ashamed of our color or I mean, a lot of people were strong enough and clear enough all th forever who said, look, the racial, racial problem in America is not about defects in black people, it's about defects in white people. A lot of people really understood that in their gut. But not until the 60s did large masses of black people really begin to understand that and say, hey, I have a right to be a human being. I have a right to take a deep breath, you know? I do not have to be judged, and I don't have to care if I take a deep breath what this white man down here says about me. And, you know, I'll tell you something. In the years since then, I have had uh, negative, stupid judgments made about me by white people. Some of them took bread out of my mouth, you know? Some of them made me less well-known. And it never really hurt me, because I really have a sense that most white people are not competent to judge me, because they don't know where I've come from. They have no sense of it. They don't know what glories are in my achievements, or in the achievements of most black people I know. So, you know, I may get mad for a little while, a white person does me wrong, um, but by and large, I think, well, it's what you get for living among people who are kind of diminished, culturally disadvantaged. You know? But something else has happened that I find astonishing. I saw a junk TV show the other night. And on this junk show was a made-for-TV movie. The romantic leads were black. which is astonishing in itself, but even more astonishing was that uh, it showed a black man and a white woman in bed together. Just briefly, but it was no question what it was. I mean, it was not, you know, and they didn't elaborate on the scene, but they were in bed and they were hugging. And Well, now, that denotes, you know, it's the tip edge of pushing it popular culture. I would never have thought popular culture would have come that far. I mean, now it was one of the, I think it was probably the worst made-for-TV movie I have ever seen in my whole life. And I am not telling you that, that the ultimate aim of all of this stuff is popular culture that shows romantic sex between black men and white women. What I am saying is that that, with that is the symbol of the, of the, uh, the, the, the hated thing. Miscegenation is the, the hated thing for the culture in the... I would never have thought that culture in the 20th century would ever... The for-profit culture would ever dare to show that. Now, I suspect that the, the negative reaction to that, it was so strong, they'll never show it again for another five years. Nevertheless, they did. The, I guess the other thing that I wouldn't have thought... And it's the worst thing. Nobody could have told me, as I watched the community action agencies in 1970 and all the ferment, um, 
that by 1989, almost half the black kids in the United States would be growing up in poverty. If you had told me in Watts in 65 when I was there, with every government there was, the, the, the city government and the county government and the state government and the U.S. government, all saying, we're going to fix Watts. Nobody could have told me that I'd have gone back there in the 88 campaign with Jackson and Watts would be worse. That all that stuff that people said that they were going to put in isn't there. You mean worse? You're worse, not worse, worse. The drugs have their hands so deep in that community. And people said, don't, they said, Jesse, don't come in. And Jesse, it's too dangerous for you to come in. But Jesse went in. And so, and he, then he had a meeting with the, the kids' uh, gangs in Watts. And there were kids there who were just strung out on drugs. There were kids there who, who had gold ropes on their necks and beepers. Uh, that, all of them victims of the drug business in one way or another. And they were saying it to Jesse as they would have said to no other human being on this earth. Uh, uh, things that were in their heart. My mind, I know it's wrong, Reverend. I know it's wrong, Reverend. But I, I, I just had nothing else to do. Reverend, I... Another guy said, I know it's wrong. I, that people shouldn't be using these things. But Reverend, I got to sell them because my, 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 I pay my rent for my mother and I pay my rent for my aunt. Well, you know, now that partly that is that is rationalization. You know that. But you also know it's true that that they are engaging in the only economic opportunity. And uh, others say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm all right, Reverend. I'm, I'm going to get it together tomorrow, Reverend. And you know, I mean, these kids are just done. The hideous thing about it, the hideous thing for me that was ripping my heart was that all these people were born after 1965. They were all born after I was there and after we were going to do all that stuff. That I would never have expected to see. And that's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking. All right, Roger, I, I promise you uh, I'll give you a copy of this tape because someday your daughter is going to value This mob of over 100 people marched on an African-American's house in October of 1909 to try to stop this family from moving in. The leading men of Minneapolis, as the newspaper called them, these are not the kind of people who want to be involved in mob violence. And they don't have to because they have other tools that they can use. And there's this tool that they become aware of. It's called a racial covenant. And so just a few months after this confrontation, you see the first racial covenant appear in a Minneapolis property. So that was a story. And this is where you first see this racial language. Caucasians only, Aryans only, no Negroes or no members of African blood or descent. That part. So don't think that racism is dead. As long as we have people, there will be racism. But what we can do is figure a way to not curve it, but make it more polite, <laughs> if you will. Because it's just not going to go away, but you don't have to kill each other for it or make everyone's life miserable, Make try to keep people oppressed. 
you know, just because of the color of their skin. That's the problem. It's like, it's okay if you don't like white people or black people or Mexicans or Chinese. That's okay. You don't have to like anyone. But you do have to respect them. You do have to treat them as human beings. Well, I guess you don't have to. Apparently, the white people have been treating people like trash and animals for years. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, it's starting to reverse a little bit. And that's not right either. But, as Donald Trump would say, it is what it is. And what it is, is horrible. And time for change. Change. 